From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Town Hall. Congressman Marcus Molinaro held a town hall in White Lake on Wednesday, taking questions from Sullivan County residents ranging from opioids to gun control, and we'll hear some of them. The Reporters Roundtable. Our own Patricio Robayo checks in with journalists around the region every month about what's making news. This month, they cover the PPL Electric Utilities billing issues in Pennsylvania. New York Senator Chuck Schumer's demand that Army Command provide more funding for the West Point Fire Department the Sullivan County District Attorney's election race, and the Clovewood housing development in Blooming Grove, plus more. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The war in Ukraine continues to dominate the Munich Security Conference convening in Germany. Leaders gather there to discuss a multitude of complex issues, as me Nicholson has details. Addressing global leaders and senior diplomats, the vice president described how Russian soldiers are targeting Ukraine's civilian population, citing evidence of widespread systemic rape, torture, execution-style killings and deportations. Think of the four-year-old girl who the United Nations recently reported was sexually assaulted by a Russian soldier. Harris's call for justice is limited, though, as the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction extends only to member states, not to Russia. She took the stage after China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, who suggested European countries, quote, think calmly about how to end the war in Ukraine. Yi is travelling to Moscow after the conference. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. At the meetings, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen suggested that European nations invest in aggressive production lines for military stocks to sustain supplies at home while also supporting Ukraine. For the second time this year, North Korea test-launched a ballistic missile. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports the launch comes ahead of several joint military exercises by the U.S. and South Korea. The South's Joint Chiefs of Staff say the North launched the suspected long-range ballistic missile from Pyongyang's Sunan district eastward into the sea. It's the North's first launch since January 1st. It was also detected by Japan, which says the projectile is likely to have fallen within its exclusive economic zone, but outside its territorial waters. The launch comes a day after North Korea's foreign ministry warned of a strong response to upcoming U.S. and South Korean military drills. Next month, the U.S. and South Korea will conduct 11-day joint exercises dubbed Freedom Shield. On Wednesday, the Allies will hold tabletop exercises at the Pentagon, simulating a North Korean nuclear attack. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. In the small northern Mississippi town of Arkabutla, authorities say a lone gunman killed six people, including his ex-wife and stepfather, at multiple locations. Ethan Cash says he was at home when he heard gunfire and ran outside where he found one of the victims. put my shoes on as fast as possible, and uh, you know I ran outside with my pistol. Cash says he found the victim's truck and inside it, the fatally wounded man. Passenger side door was open, so that's where I went. And, uh, you know, the guy was unresponsive in there. I checked his pulse. There was nothing. The suspect is in custody. The accused gunman's motives are unknown. The killings occurred at a convenience store and two homes. This is NPR News in Washington. 
The president of the Philippines says he will not cooperate with an international criminal court investigation into that country's ongoing drug war. Ashley Westerman reports. Speaking to reporters Saturday, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos said that the probe into the drug war is a threat to Philippine society. I do not see what their jurisdiction is. I feel that we have in our uh, uh, police uh, and our judiciary a good system. We do not need assistance from uh, any outside, uh, outside entity. The ICC picked up the investigation again this year, saying Philippine authorities have failed to provide substantial evidence that they were properly investigating the drug war. The probe was put on hold by former President Rodrigo Duterte, who launched the drug war in 2016. Philippine officials say some 6,000 people have died in the war. Rights groups suspect the number is much higher. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Manila. Despite U.S. government warnings about digital security, TikTok is a huge hit in the U.S., as it is in Europe. Now the company is planning two more European data centers, insisting that the Chinese-owned video sharing app is not a threat to data privacy in the West. In a blog post at Week's End, TikTok announced it's finalizing plans for a second data center in Ireland. It's first in that nation announced last year. Regulators are watching the company that says it has 125 million month active users in the European Union. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Recently elected Republican Congressman Marcus Molinaro held a town hall at the former Duggan School in White Lake, New York, Wednesday. It's his second stop on a circuit of town halls in each of the 11 counties that make up New York's sprawling 19th congressional district. Before being elected to Congress, Molinaro served as Dutchess County Executive for 12 years, holding over 275 similar town hall events during his tenure. In White Lake, Molinaro said he believes that, quote, when the roof leaks, it leaks on Republicans and Democrats alike, end quote, and that the work of elected officials has a direct impact on the people they are representing. The Sullivan County Democrat covered the town hall in White Lake and provided this audio. Here's an excerpt of some of the questions. I'm Wendy Brown, for those of you that don't know me. I've lived in Bethel for over 30 years. Um, right now, I work with the county. I'm the chair of the Jobs Task Force with uh, Sheriff Schiff, is one of our pillar leads, and also our DA, Brian Connolly. I could go on forever about the drug yes, situation. Does. I won't, but I do want to give a shout out to you because in Dutchess County, and I watched you very carefully, you started a program collectively with uh, for uh, moms and babies that oh, were born to um, with substance use disorder, yeah. and we took your program, stopped it shamelessly, Good. and replicated it <laughs> in Sullivan County. Yeah. It's really going very well. That's right. It is the least known, but one of the proudest um, or, or most uh, beneficial programs that we launched uh, in Dutchess. Um, and I, I want to talk about it, but then I also want to talk about what we ought to be doing to focus on, on, on addiction and treatment. Um, uh, women in particular are uh, falling prey to, to addiction, mostly uh, uh, fentanyl or, or synthetic opioids, um, um, and, and how we would 
uh, how we would get at, how we would help them overcome uh, that addiction. And they brought this to me. They said, you know, in particular, uh, we have a, a lot of pregnant women um, who generally are, are what we would call individuals known to us, meaning mm -hmm. they were either in the system or, in, or sadly in the criminal justice system, and they come back out of the community and they're struggling with addiction. And um, um, we have, if we can intervene at the right moment during the pregnancy, by the way, child could be born without uh, without uh, uh, impact uh, because of the uh, because of the drug use likely not in fact in impacted um, all over the long term because uh, by uh, or, or with addiction um, and what what really when I spoke to uh, uh, one of the, the mothers who was promoting this uh, proposal she said the most powerful um, uh, drug addiction treatment is self-worth <laughs> You know, I don't, that's different for everybody. I mean, addiction, in particular opioids um, and synthetic opioids, um, this isn't like marijuana. <laughs> I mean, this isn't like, and I say very respectfully, it's not the old, it's not drugs of 60 years ago, it's not even drugs of 20 years ago. Uh, they physically change the chemical compound of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so your brain starts to tell you you need more of this. It's not, and, and, and I will tell you, I take issue with those who say, well, they chose. Most people don't choose. Uh, most people took a few prescription drugs and all of a sudden it triggered their brain. Some people went to a party and didn't know it. And others, uh, uh, because of, of life circumstance, parents, family members, drug, uh, gangs, whatever their interaction is, they fall prey to addiction. But, but these, these opioids change the chemical compound of your brain and tells you uh, that you need more. It's like, it's like you know you need to eat. Now, I don't, I don't eat breakfast or lunch, eat dinner, but most people <laughs> know that you have to eat, you have to breathe. Your body is, invol is, is, is uh, involuntarily just telling you to do this. That's what it does to your brain. And so self-worth for, uh, for a pregnant woman um, um, is very powerful. And it was among the most successful, still is one of the most successful treatment programs that we have, but it's part of a broader uh, network of services we launched in, my, uh, in, in Duchess when I served there. Um, um, and I'd argue probably the most comprehensive community-based network of mental health and drug treatment services in the state. Now, I think as a nation, we have to focus uh, more effectively on addressing uh, co-occurring uh, uh, co uh, 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 issues, uh, mental health, undiagnosed or diagnosed mental health and, and, and substance use. Um, what we did though was launch this, this uh, community-based uh, uh, programming where we brought all of our partners together and created emergency uh, in, uh, intervention, diversion, uh, transition, and we focused on enforcement too. And the reason that I think this is a value is, is one, we're losing too many lives. There's no question. Most families are impacted by substance use disorder uh, or have lost a loved one uh, to uh, uh, to addiction, everyone is impacted by mental health concerns. And if you think you're mentally well, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> if you think that mental wellness has an impact on family, I'm guessing that it has, and in most cases, we choose to ignore it. I, I you know, I know my limits. <laughs> uh, um, and so, uh, trying to intervene at the right moment for the services is, is very important. But I also say to some of my more conservative friends, um, it's also financially smart. And so by, by taking Medicare and Medicaid funding and leveraging those dollars in a very uh, direct way, in a very coordinated way, we not only help save lives, but we, we bend the curve and, and, and reduce uh, long-term Medicaid and Medicare costs. It, it frees up emergency departments. It, our, our hospital system is on life support. Uh, in particular, outside of major metropolitan areas, across the country, the workforce over and over uh, a demand in, in EDs, uh, and then all the other challenges uh, associated. We talk about all those things. 
Um, but if we can if we can develop use those federal and state dollars to leverage uh, an effective community-based mental health uh, system, not institutionalized care, but mental health system, uh, where we can intervene at the right moment, we can not only help improve the, the individual quality of life, overall quality of life of our community, but drive down costs of those programs as well. Very smart. I happen to think that that makes sense. And it worked. Uh, it worked so much that Andrew Cuomo, who did not like me, uh, uh, for, for reasons I gave him, uh, uh, actually replicated um, the, the county program and funded it uh, so that it would be it became the statewide model. Uh, and now uh, there's there's statewide funding. Uh, the last two things uh, I want to mention are what you uh, referenced uh, in the in the area of mental health. Uh, number one, right now there is an effort, and Governor Hochul needs to correct it. Uh, we met with her. Uh, three days ago now, uh, bipartisan New York delegation met with her in Washington. Um, I made this case. Uh, the state is taking federal Medicaid dollars that are meant to provide your counties the ability to deliver Medicaid services. She's taking about a billion of those Medicaid dollars, federal money. Somebody said to me, you know, pay attention to federal issues. This is a federal issue. A billion dollars of federal aid that's supposed to go to your county and the city of New York. To, de to deliver Medicaid-related services, and, and she's redirecting it to the general fund. Yeah, Andrew it. Cuomo tried yeah. to do that, and was rebuffed by then-Senator Schumer and county executives like myself. Uh, Governor Huckle's attempting to do it now. She should correct it, uh, and she shouldn't do it. Uh, the other, though, is, uh, to her credit, not the same billion dollars, but they are, they, uh, the governor has proposed a billion dollars in, um, in mental health funding. Now, I did ask uh, that she provide us a little bit of detail so that one, maybe we can have a federal partnership. There might be federal dollars that we can match or, or help leverage to expand that, uh, what she's pro pro proposing. Uh, and two, uh, we wanna make sure it's effective. And one place that New York State has to get better out, and we ought to be telling them they need to do this, is, is, is actually funding um, inpatient uh, treatment. And so community-based care, very important. You know, uh, somebody comes to your, you know, uh, you can go to a treatment uh, center, you can go with, uh, deal with a, um, um, uh, a rehab coach, somebody in the community who's lived through uh, substance use or mental wellness. Um, non-medical model, really the best. If we can get you at the right moment, a non-medical intervention is the most effective way to deal with drug addiction, uh, uh, substance use, and mental health. There are, however, those who need to be uh, in a long-term bed. And sadly, what, they, what happens is they become the people who clog up emergency rooms. And again, I say that respectfully, not the best place for them. Or because uh, we, don't catch, we don't intervene at the right moment, they end up committing a crime, and they end up in the jail system. Least effective, but by the way, America's most effective mental health system, sadly, is in the criminal justice system. How, how pathetic is that? And so um, New York has not funded new beds in years, in years. Because the way this works is, right, we, we put dollars. The feds and the state put dollars on the ground and say, these are going to go to offset the, the cost of providing inpatient mental health care because uh, we don't, we, you know, it's not the most profitable in the, mental, in, the, in, the, in the health care. And so the state has taken these dollars and they claim that they have more beds, but they haven't funded them, so they, they, never, get, they never get opened. And so there needs to be a, a real focused commitment. We've been working with your um, healthcare providers, met with most of the hospitals uh, in this district uh, over the course of the last two weeks, and, and we've made, uh, I've made this a, a priority, that we have to talk through how to leverage those state and federal dollars to get inpatient treatment beds open, in particular, and I think you might appreciate this, in particular adolescents. Yeah. Uh, not, enough, uh, not enough adolescent uh, care, um, and we see it play out. You see those who deal with uh, addiction, uh, undiagnosed mental illness, trauma that's in their life, 
um, you see it play out. It, it ends up becoming violence. It ends up becoming uh, the taking of one's own life. It ends up becoming uh, throwing away uh, the potential uh, that every individual has. Rabbi Chuck Diamond uh, just moved up here to Smallwood from Pittsburgh. And uh, I was the rabbi at the Tree of Life congregation up until about six months, seven months before the shooting. And if uh, I had been there, I wouldn't be here asking this question now. So I'm very much touched and affected by that mass shooting and every mass shooting. You're hearing it from a rabbi that prayers, the thoughts of prayers mean nothing. So we have to take action. And I'm not impressed by the Republican Party's approach, and some Democrats as well, to the issue of gun control. I did try to do a little research. I appreciate you being here, by the way. Um, so my question to you, and, and again, it's a complicated question, a gun control. So I'm going to be specific about assault rifles. The only reason for assault rifles is to kill people. I don't see any other purpose myself. I don't have a problem with people necessarily owning guns. But assault rifles, what, and what are you going to do to lead the charge to ban assault rifles? And what is your party going to do as well? Uh, and, and I am just sickened each day by the continued mass shootings. Our kids are not safe in schools, elementary schools, nursery schools, high schools, colleges. We're not safe going to the mall, to restaurants. We're not safe. Uh, praying in our synagogues or churches or mosques. You're not even safe in the Capitol building. Right. What? What are you going to do? An assault rifle seems to be an easy, an easy, no-nonsense type of uh, I suspect if it were easy, uh, we wouldn't be having the conversation right now. So why is it so easy? Well, there's a, there's a few things. First, um, the Constitution is clear, and that's something that you have to acknowledge. It's not so. You can own a musket. You can own a musket. I don't think they intended assault rifles. And I think people, excuse me for... I think people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, so what's more important? Is the right to an assault rifle or the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which all these people who died don't have? I, I hear you. Okay. Um, clearly, we're going to end up disagreeing. Um, but why? Because, um, in my view, um, there are a couple things that we have that we, we have to balance. First of all, with respect, um, I I I care deeply about my own children. You ask me what I can tell my children. I, I I respect that we live in a dangerous society. We do. Um, I don't um, often uh, blame um, um, uh, other people for the actions of an individual. I blame the person uh, for taking those actions. And we have, uh, in particular, I offered you in the state of New York the strictest gun control measures in the in the country. And one of the problems we have in particular in this state, and I think nationally, is we don't treat those who act out violently in particular with a, with a firearm uh, with the seriousness that you suggest we need to treat them. 60% of New York's gun-related crimes, gun-related crimes, are pled to non-gun-related crimes. Why? Because it's easier to let the person go back out on the street with the weapon, knowing full well that they're going to be act violent. We know this. We see it every day. So what I would argue is I want every individual who, who we know, we know is a threat to society, be treated as such. And the fact that we don't is troubling. Uh, background checks to ensure that, that those that we know uh, are likely to act out violently against themselves or others. I'm with you. If there is an indication that, that this, is, this is an individual who can act out violently against themselves or others, and, and they are afforded constitutionally due process, then we ought to make sure that that background check works. 
Do you know that currently today there are a million background checks that haven't been conducted by the FBI? That means there's a million individuals who may or may not have uh, violent tendencies in their, in their nature. We've never confronted. What I want is if, if government is going to impose those restrictions, to use them and to impose them. And what we often don't see is the seriousness that you and I may have. We may be on different sides of whether or not we should ban something. But if the law is clear, the law should be enforced. And why isn't it? Because uh, uh, I'm not asking. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. That's where I start. Secondly, uh, I will offer you, and I think somebody over here said it, being mentally ill doesn't make you a criminal, period. And we should not use mental illness. And I, I chastise my colleagues, Republicans, for saying, I, I've told them to their face, you cannot say that violence occurs because of mental illness. What we can say, however, is we know, we know that, in, that, that in, there are individuals who, because of trauma in their lives, do act out violently against themselves or others, and we choose to turn our cheek. We do. When we know it, you have a child, you see it, you want to ignore it. You want to avoid it. You hope that that isn't going to manifest itself in violence. Yet, so, so many kids act out violently against themselves or others. We see it every day. When we have a priority to put a billion dollars into something, what I want is social-emotional investment in schools, every school in America, but instead we're focused on something else. Why? Because it's not a priority for us. All I would say to you is that, yes, we disagree. Um, the, 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 I, I believe, I believe that the, the Second Amendment has been defined as such. It's not about, it's not about hunting. It is about self-preservation. Self it is. And to that point, the Constitution was written by a bunch of smart folks who thought freedom of speech would extend well into the use of digital, the digital age. And so we have to balance that challenge. And it is a real challenge, and it's unique to America, like it or not. So we do have to confront that. That is a reality that, that, that is a counterpoint to the argument that you made. But there's room for common sense, and there's room for commonality when it comes to investing and preventing and intervening so that we don't have violent actions continue time and time again. Yet we do. And, and that's how, and that's what I will tell you is there's a lot, I said to the president this on his way out of the door uh, uh, from, uh, from the State of the Union, there's common ground, there's common ground on investing effectively in mental health tools, trauma-informed care, and intervention. And if we can move the needle effectively there, by the way, with now a divided Congress, there wasn't a divided Congress all these, all these other times that we wanted these other, you wanted these other investments. Uh, in a divided Congress, I believe that that is the place where we will, we will be able to make measurable impacts. And uh, I'm hopeful that I can produce something that you can be happy or proud of, and then you decide. That was an excerpt of Congressman Marcus Molinaro's town hall in White Lake Wednesday. Thanks again to the Sullivan County Democrat for that audio. You can read more about Representative Molinaro's town hall in the current edition of The Democrat on newsstands or at scdemocratonline.com. Now, every month we check in with local journalists for the Reporters' Roundtable and find out what's making news in the region. Here's WJFF's Patricia Rabaya with this month's edition. Welcome to another edition of the Reporters' Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricia Robayo. Today I'm joined with journalist Liam Mayo of The Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Schwankuk Journal, Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Lena Bellamy from the Times Union. Don't forget, The Reporter's Roundtable is a podcast. You can find The Reporter's Roundtable wherever you find your favorite podcast. Just search for WJFF, The Reporter's Roundtable. It's been a busy month, so let's get straight to it. 
Liam from the River Reporter, you reported this earlier on the local edition about Hancock having a new electric vehicle charging station. We can tell us about this and the growing electric infrastructure in Hancock. Yeah. So uh, there's this ribbon cutting on January 31st in Hancock of uh, the latest Evolve New York uh, charging station. Uh, these are charging stations that the New York Power Authority is building out across New York State. I believe they have 118 charging stations across 31 sites on New York. And the idea with these is to help solve the problem of range anxiety for electric vehicle owners. Uh, there are a lot of pushes both nationally and at the state level to get more electric vehicles on the roads and to get more consumers buying electric vehicles. But the infrastructure to support them isn't really there. At least it's not a one to one equivalent in terms of the infrastructure that is currently out there to support gas powered cars. Uh, you can go pretty much anywhere and find a gas station. Uh, you can't go pretty much everywhere and find a electric vehicle charger. So the idea with Evolve New York is to station electric vehicle chargers open to the public at strategic sites across the state to provide a network for long distance trips so that if you're going on a long distance trip with an electric vehicle through New York State, you know you'll be able to charge. So the one in Hancock is uh, the latest of this initiative. Um, it's designed to service the Route 19. Route 17 corridor, um, which uh, people at the unveiling said was basically a major corridor for anyone going from the New York City area to parts west in the state. Yeah, and it's a nice location. Uh, they're building a dog park, or they built a dog park next to it. The, it was kind of a separate project the town was working on at the same time that got built along with it. So you can park your car, walk your dog, charge your car, have everyone like unjittered and ready to get back on the road. Yeah, it definitely sounds like, like a plan. It's great that this network is starting to be built out because you said uh, there is a the push for electric vehicles in our future and the infrastructure is not there. Like, you're absolutely right. You could find a gas station just about anywhere. Uh, but the electric, uh, electric charging stations are few and far between, I would imagine, right now. But it looks like it will change. Keeping on the topic of electric, there was an issue with PPL's electric billing. I hear this horror stories across the board for almost every electric company. What can you tell us about your situation? Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, a little bit emblematic of a lot of stuff we've been seeing. Central Hudson with uh, NYSEG, RG&E. PPL Electric Utilities is a Pennsylvanian utility company. It serves around 1.4 million customers in 29 counties in the eastern part of the state, and that includes Pike and Wayne counties. Throughout January, customers were reporting really excessively high electric bills, uh, some double or triple what they had been uh, paying previously. And according to uh, Commissioner, sorry, former Wayne County Commissioner, current state representative Joe Adams, the company estimated its bills incorrectly in December. And then when it got the sort of updated information for January, it tacked on its December charges to January, resulting in these massively over uh, inflated bills, sort of adding misery to misery. 
the customer service systems got overwhelmed with the number of people who were experiencing this glitch and calling in to complain about it and to try and get some resolution for it, leading to people not really being able to even figure out what was going on. PBL has apologized. It's issued corrected bills or adjusted the next month's bills uh, to sort of make up for that. It was doing a a few things going forward as well to help resolve these issues. It'll waive late fees uh, in January and February, and it won't shut off res- residential or small business customers through March 31 for non-payment. But so, so in the one sense, this is a story of like a glitch that has now been resolved. Sort of like we're seeing with utilities across the region, there are underlying issues and there are, un- are underlying rate increases that are kind of going on. In our reporting on it, we found that uh, electric prices were roughly 54% higher for PPL uh, now than two years earlier in 2021. And there are multiple sources for that. The high cost of natural gas sort of adds to that. The high cost or just the extreme temperatures that lead to people using more power are another. Um, Sort of tying back into the Hancock Evolved story, one of the things, one of the reasons like NYSEG, which is an electric utility company more on the New York side, is trying to raise its rates is to invest money in electric charging stations or solar infrastructure, just stuff to sort of adapt to and meet the climate crisis. In, in the one sense, this PPL glitch is just a glitch that's been resolved, but it, it is kind of a tough time for uh, utility companies for all of their customers, which is pretty much everyone relies on power in this day. So anything that's affecting the utility companies is affecting a lot of people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Liam. Liam from The River Reporter. Uh, Now let's turn our eyes to Times Union. We have Lena Bellamy joining us for the Reporters Roundtable. Lena, you covered a press conference that involved Senator Chuck Schumer as he demanded that the Army Command provides more funding for the West Point Fire Department. What can you tell us about this? Is this a volunteer fire department or are they paid? Um, That's part of why, actually, um, I pursued this story, because the West Point Fire Department is in a very unique situation. Um, It's at the United States Military Academy, so it's federally funded. Uh, So it's not like a, a local municipal paid department or a volunteer department with a special taxing district. So it really relies on that federal funding, um, which comes from Army Command, which is under the Department of Defense. So Chuck Schumer is demanding more money to be funded to the West Point Fire Department. And I'm assuming that money has to come from the federal government. Or are they looking for other ways to receive funds? I could sort of give you a little bit of background on um, sort of like what they've been suffering as far as the funding, if you'd like me to do that. It's been basically suffering from being underfunded by the federal government for some time, but it's particularly struggled in the past two years um, because of these across-the-board major cuts that they've made on the federal level. There are 78 other garrisons that are in West Point Fire Department's uh, group, so to speak. It's a little complicated. But um, they're, they're in all different um, parts of the country, all different sizes. West Point is a little bit larger than most of them. So these across-the-board um, cuts hurt them more because they need more funding for uh, what they need, like their equipment and um, their staff. 
So to put that in perspective, last year, they asked for $1.76 million for their non-salary budget. And even though the federal government validated the request, uh, which essentially was like, all of these things make sense for you to ask for, um, they only gave them $90,000. What they were calling for and what Schumer was calling for was for their 2023 request to be filled, which was uh, around like $1.2 million. You mentioned in your article the actual effects of having of not having enough funds in the fire department. You wrote about the West Point Fire Department having to borrow a fire truck from another department. Yeah, I actually found that to be one of the most uh, striking things that they told about us at the or they told us about at the press conference because their trucks they just they were damaged. They needed to either be repaired or buy new. The trucks cost upwards of a million dollars to replace. So they didn't have a ladder truck and they were borrowing from the VA. So the firefighters told us that if they had to respond to an incident, they couldn't do rescues from higher than the third story of a building. So that's pretty frightening. But there's good news. Two weeks after Chuck Schumer, you know, called on the Army Secretary to fill their budget request, two weeks later, which is very fast, uh, for the federal government, they responded and said that they would do that and more. So instead of $1.2 million for this year's budget, they're actually upping it to $1.8 million. And they're getting them two repaired fire trucks, a new pumper, and they are paying for a $4.6 million renovation to their Washington Road fire station this year. That's great news. And where are we on the timeline right now from the West Point Fire Department getting the funds, getting the equipment they need to battle the fires and emergencies uh, in their area? Um, That's a good question. So they operate on fiscal year budgets, uh, but they've already started getting some more resources from the federal government. A member of Schumer's staff texted me yesterday a photo of a fire truck arriving. So they're already getting help. Wow, that is it is fast. You also have a story in the Times Union about a housing development in Blooming Grove. What can you tell us about this? Because it seems to be a controversial project. You can let us know what exactly is controversial about it. Oh, yes. So I'm just, I'm just now learning a lot about this project. Um, it's been in the works for years. Um, it underwent a four year environmental review before it even got approved into this point that it's at right now. But essentially, um, it's a, a group of developers that are going to create 600 single family homes on a 700 acre site in the village of South Blooming Grove in Southern Orange County. It's controversial because of the dense development. Which, you know, there's arguments on both sides. We need dense development, but you know, how do you go about it? Where do you put it? But I think what the most controversial thing about it right now is that the developers have defied six uh, stop work orders from the DEC that have been issued since last May. And that includes eight notices of violations too, which they sometimes go hand in hand. Um, and this is because they didn't have, according to the DEC, the proper permits in place. And the permitting process can get a little bit complicated, but essentially there were permits related to water pollution, threatened animals, endangered species, and sewer. 
And so they need to get all of those in place before they can move forward with construction. But they are moving forward anyway. Wow, that's interesting. Is the local government going to do anything more as far as it maybe getting the courts involved to actually have them stop doing work, knowing that they are going to continue doing work despite the the uh, the violations? Um, so so far, I haven't heard of any um, local government, as far as like the village is concerned, trying to stop them or intervene. Uh, State Senator James Scoofus has been very vocal on this, although he told me in his interview he feels like he's one of the only uh, officials or politicians who have been kind of screaming about it, so to speak. And he has called on D.C. to start issuing uh, very hefty fines to help with the enforcement to further compel the developers to stop with the pre-construction work. Um, He wants to see the total maximum, you know, absolute limit for the funds because he was saying um, he doesn't think a slap on the wrist is going to necessarily stop them. Um, And one example that he brought up was uh, the, the maximum fine that's allowable for uh, water quality violations. You can get fined up to $37,500 a day for those. So he wants to see the DEC go as far as they possibly can. And then one thing that he did mention in the interview is that he was under the impression that DEC was preparing for some enforcement action. That's kind of how he put it. And I asked him what that meant. He wasn't exactly sure, and he didn't know exactly when to expect whatever this action would be. We asked DEC what that could possibly be. They didn't give specifics either, but they did send a statement that said um, they were committed to holding the developers accountable and that they would continue to monitor the site and chronicle noncompliance and will undertake all necessary enforcement actions to address the violations. So I don't know if that's a nod to them saying we're creating a log or we're watching it very closely. So we'll see what happens. You also have another story in the Times Union about a murder case about a woman who shot and killed her boyfriend after allegedly years of abuse, who is seeking a pardon from the governor what can you tell us about this and why she feels that she should be pardoned? There is a lot of attention on her case. Uh, there's been some podcasts, uh, true crime episodes. She was featured on 2020 uh, a week or so ago. So Nikki Adamondo, she's from Poughkeepsie. In 2017, she shot and killed her boyfriend and father of her children. Uh, his name was Chris Grover. So she she never acted like she didn't. I mean, police stopped her when she was stopped at a stoplight uh, in Poughkeepsie and it turned green and she wasn't moving. And then when she got out of her car, she told police about what she did. She was convicted of second degree murder and criminal possession of a weapon two years after the incident happened. Um, and she said that she acted in self-defense because she feared for her life. And she um, has said that Grover sexually and physically abused her for years before she killed him. So in 2020, she was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. But the following year, an appellate court reduced her sentence under the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. And they reduced that to seven and a half years. That also included time served. So right now she could be out by 2024, even if the governor doesn't grant her a pardon. Um, And so 
basically the reason that we wrote about it was because, well, we have this new series that we're running in the Times Union and it's called The Follow-Up. So we look back on things that we've reported on before to give people basically a status update. And so that's what we were doing in terms of Nikki's pending application for clemency. And she she first submitted her application in 2021. Um, and so last year, around December, her team, which she has a big team surrounding her of supporters. She's got friends and family. Um, she has uh, people who talk to the media. She's got pro bono lawyers, the, a lot of supporters, thousands of people who've signed petitions. Um, so they made a big case uh, to put her story back in the spotlight in December because Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul, well, and past governors, they usually grant pardons and sentence commutations at the end of the year. Um, so they were hoping that this would put some pressure on Hochul to uh, grant her application, but uh, it didn't happen. It's still pending. She wasn't part of the group. So um, what our story did was we kind of just said that was the news. And then we looked at um, reforms to clemency that Hochul has proposed. And we sort of told readers where those stand, what she has done and what she still hasn't done yet. You're listening to the Reporters Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. We'll be right back with Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat and Chris Raleigh from the Schwanka Journal. Everyday Radio Catskill brings you local news and conversations on air. But did you know we have even more local programming on our Radio Catskill podcasts? Like Cooking in the Catskills with Chef Brett August. Or Close to Home with Leif Johansson. A deep dive into the upstate New York institutions and organizations that keep rural communities running. Radio Catskill podcasts at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Reporters' Roundtable on Radio Chatskill. I'm your host for this month, Patricio Rabayo. Now let's turn to Derek Kurt for the Sullivan County Democrat. Thank you again so much for joining us on the program. A story that we've been following is the White Mansion on 17B. I understand this parcel of land was going to be developed a couple of years ago, but unfortunately that project fell through. Now there is a new development plan happening, uh, but some folks are not that happy about what's happening with the development, and there was a public hearing. What can you tell us the latest on this project and the White Hall, on the White Mansion on 17B, and the latest, and what came out of the public hearing? So yeah, the Bethel Town Board, or excuse me, the Bethel Planning Board, not the Town Board, the Planning Board, uh, they reconvened after uh, hosting of the first public hearing on the reapplication or the new application of the uh, White Lake Mansion House. And the original application of the original developer was back in 2013. So in 2013, that application ended up falling flat on its face. It did not go anywhere. It did not move. And a new application with, I believe, is a new developer has come back again. And yes, it is. it has become controversial for a number of reasons, including environmental concerns of, of White Lake and what building and, and industry might do to the physical lake, to the natural environment surrounding the lake, 
Um, there are concerns of the character of the Hamlet, and there are concerns of traffic increases. Um, I know at the public hearing that there was a section of public comment, and many residents uh, spoke up in criticism about it. Specifically, there was a volunteer firefighter from the town of White Lake, or the Hamlet of White Lake, excuse me, who grew increasingly concerned of the increase of traffic, especially in the summer when we have an in- inflow of visitors, of people who come up only in the summertime. So there were there were many different varying concerns for the project. And another major concern uh, that brought a lot of people's attention was when the and the project is being proposed again uh, at the latest uh, planning board meeting uh, by Jacob Billing of Billing Laughlin, excuse me, and Silver LLP, who is the representative for this developer. There were concerns that the information that he brought towards the board and before the crowd that the data that was collected for the project uh, in 2013 is currently being used and looked at. And that data comes from 2012 on traffic, on um, water and sewer. And so there were a lot of concerns that there wasn't enough research done or put forward in this new application, um, which... You know, at a glance, it almost looks like a reapplication of the 2013 uh, Mansion House Development Project. It's very interesting because a lot of the projects that come before the planning boards that I've seen, uh, one of the biggest pushback on all of them ha- always has been the the environmental impact that a project will have. Uh, you know, uh, land clearing or you know, uh, uh, wastewater or uh, the you know, chemicals that put on the fields. All those things come up to question. Where in the timeline of the planning board right now is this project? Yeah, so the planning board that night, they did not make any action uh, for or against the the, uh, the application. Uh, there were calls from the crowd to uh, deny the application right then and there and close the public hearing, which they did not do. They ended up uh, discussing it amongst themselves with Jacob Billing, and they ultimately, the the planning board, told the crowd that it was, you know, a lot of information to digest. There was a lot of new things to look at. There was a lot of research that was still coming in. And so they they took no action on the application and they closed the public hearing without setting a date for a third public hearing on the development. So currently there um, is no solid uh, evidence that uh, it may move forward. Uh, so I think we'll be expecting to hear back from the planning board relatively soon. Looking ahead at the election, Derek, for the district attorney, you have Deputy County Attorney Tom Cowley running against acting district attorney Brian Canty this November. The only difference now is that Deputy County Attorney has switched parties, is now running as a Republican, and will be challenging the acting district attorney. Derek, what is the latest on this election for the district attorney? Even though election day, you know, it's a bit far away, people are still gearing up and getting ready. I've uh, heard that both the Republican committee, uh, committees and the Democratic committees in the county are ramping up their efforts looking forward to November. Acting DA Brian Conaty, uh, stepped into the role initially just earlier this year when former DA Megan Galligan, uh, ascended to the bench, uh, to be a New York State, uh, justice, uh, for the third judicial district. And he, Take that he took that vacated position and county deputy attorney uh wanted to throw his hat in the ring and they had a forum earlier this year 
which resulted in a number of local Democratic committee members um, and local residents uh, asking questions and, and them sharing their thoughts. And one major point that the both the candidates really rallied behind was the idea to establish a more vertical integration system in the district attorney's office, which would allow newer, more ex- unexperienced attorneys to take on more challenging uh, cases and on uh, varying levels of difficulty. And they both agreed essentially that that switch towards more of that type of system would al- allow for better retention, better invitation to people looking to uh, start a uh, legal career in Sullivan County. So, um, you know, they talked about a number of other things, but toward the end of the end of the forum, they closed it. And just a short time later, Tom Colley announced that he would no longer be seeking the Democratic nomination. And managing editor at the Sullivan County Democrat, uh, Joe Abraham, was able to speak with uh, Mr. Colley, and he confirmed that he would be seeking the Republican endorsement for the DA race. So it looks like both Conaty and Colley escape the primaries from each other, but it's we're still not sure. It's still very early for either committee for people to throw their hat in the ring as well. So at least for now, they're, the primary between Collie and Conaty is uh, no more. So both are running for seeking separate nominations from the separate parties. Thank you so much, Derek, for that. Now let's turn our eyes towards Ulster County and Ellenville. We have the one and only Chris Rowley from the Schwankong Journal. Chris, welcome back to the program. Let's talk about the Environmental Conservation Commission. Uh, what is this all about? Uh, this uh, I think it's, it's, I guess, is uh, current development. Yeah, yeah. Wolfsing has an environmental conservation commission, um, and uh, they have been working for several years on a report uh, concerning water resources in the town of Wolfsing. And of course, most of the people in Wolfsing have wells uh, drilled to this nice phrase that um, Jack Griffo, the chair of that commission, came up with: bedrock. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, most people have deep wells all drilled down 100, 200 feet. But the issue really arose was that most development in Wilborsing and up and down the 209 corridor uh, is on top of the, the aquifer. Uh, this is a singularly uh, difficult issue because it's an important aquifer and it's the only one in, in the town, really. And it's shared with, you know, Rochester, Marble Town to the north and also down to Mamacating and Wurtsboro and then on down, uh, <laughs> into, uh, uh, you know, further south. Anyway, the, uh, the issue is if they were to do anything as recommended by the Conservation Commission, um, at least as, as it is now, uh, in that report, um, in the words of uh, town of Wawarsing uh, attorney uh, William Collier, that would be the end of development. <laughs> that would be it. There would be no more development. So, uh, you know, because they're, they're calling for, like, the use of only one-third of a parcel of property for any particular commercial development and, and things, things of that nature, which would pretty much hamstring most, um, you know, commercial development. 
Um, so we'll see how that develops. That's a, that's a, a relative, uh, put it this way. It's a, it's a fairly warm potato handed to the town board. You know, how are they going to deal with this? Uh, and we'll see on Thursday when they meet, if they are prepared to discuss it, whether they're going to be happy with it or they're going to say, well, hey, it's too late, you know, because historically all development has been right down that corridor. That's where everything is. If you drive down 209, you see, uh, everything from farms to, uh, you know, McDonald's, you know, that's, that's where they are. Um, and there have been, uh, historically a couple of, uh, rather sad and horrible, uh, pollution issues, um, particularly on the outskirts of, um, Ellenville, uh, the, uh, we're washing, uh, in Napanock, uh, Napanock paper mill, uh, which was a, a super fun site. Uh, has been worked on for decades and is probably close to like being done, as I understand it. But, you know, the, the legacy was pretty terrifying. Anyway, so, you know, you've got those sort of, those sort of problems. And um, we'll see. Um, I look forward to, uh, Thursday's meeting, um, and watching town board members dance around on that one. Cause, you know, it's a difficult issue. You, you don't want to knock out all development. I mean, that's, that's crucial for various kinds of, uh, of taxes and, um, you know, whatever and, um, jobs, you know, um, I mean, would, would it be, uh, you know, that we would have to cancel the Cresco Labs, uh, application, which is already permitted, right? Which will bring maybe 375 full-time positions to World Wilson. You know, I mean, no, that's not happening. <laughs> so, so that's where we balance our, our, our thing. You know, it's the, it's the future of our water resources via V. Um, do we have jobs today? So that's that issue. Um, It'll be good. We'll see how it goes. So I guess the main concern is that it's going to be they're afraid of, of draining the, the aquifer or contaminate it. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 terribly easy in our in our culture to um, you know spray long term pollutants around PFAs. You know, I mean, we're terrible. I mean, we're just a very messy species. Let's face it. You know, and um, uh, you know, we 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 will we will do. Without even thinking about it, really, we'll do terrible things. Uh, that cause uh, plumes of one thing or another to go cascading through an aquifer and then into people's wells eventually, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, it, the, the balancing of these things is, is tricky and it's uh, kind of the, the story of our time, really, isn't it? You know, um, on the one hand, we have the environment. On the other hand, we have us. <laughs> we want to eat. <laughs> yeah, you know, we have this situation here in Sullivan County with the airport where uh, it was used at one point to help train firefighters and they were using the spray foam, which has PFAS in it, and it contaminated the area around it. And it was just found out recently that it was contaminated. So there's a process. I mean, they're not a process, but there's a process. There is going to be a process to remove it. But these are the effects of what was happening in the past. We didn't know all these chemicals would do to us. And now we're sort of uh, feeling those effects. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, okay, the PFAS is a, produces foams that are really good at snuffing out fires. You know, if that's what you want to do, then that's where you go. Uh, no, okay, PCBs were really, really good at protecting transformers from fires. And you only had to use a certain amount in your transformer oil to make sure those transformers would not burn, no matter what happened. They could be struck by lightning. But unfortunately, um, the 13 different kinds of PCBs ended up becoming a colossal pollution problem. 
all over the country. Our, our, our knowledge and understanding of these often chemicals uh, comes a little bit behind our use of them, which is the problem. Thank you so much for joining us on the Reporters Roundtable. I was joined with journalist Liam Mayo of The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh from the Schoencock Journal, Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Lena Bellamy from the Times Union. And don't forget to look out for our podcast. Search for WJFF, The Reporters Roundtable. And that's our own Patricia Rubio with The Reporters Roundtable. We bring that to you every month with journalists from the region and the, what's making news in the area. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. A reminder, if you're a local musician or if you know a local musician who has a dream of playing a Tiny Desk concert, well, the NPR Music Tiny Desk Contest 2023 is accepting applications right now. Just send a video of you playing a song behind a desk of your choosing. And if you win, you'll get to play your very own Tiny Desk concert and go on tour with NPR Music. You can get all the details at our website, wjffradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Tim Bruno. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. From Rourke Law, Liberty, New York, a general law practice serving the Catskills and Delaware River Valley, with an emphasis on estate planning, estate administration, elder law, and real property matters. RourkeLaw.com. Hello. If you're a book reader, and even if you're not, I'd like to invite you to join me, Aaron Hicklin, every Sunday at noon for Shelf Life on WJFF Radio Catskill, a show about books and the people who love them. Each episode, my guest picks two of their favorite books. I read them, and then we get together to talk about them. That's Shelf Life on Sundays at noon on WJFF Radio Catskill. Move Sullivan, Sullivan County's free bus system, helps people get around. Whether they're going to work on time Monday through Friday, visiting doctors in Monticello, Liberty, Rock Hill, and Harris, or heading to class at SUNY Sullivan. Move Sullivan helps people shop in downtown Wurtsboro or Kaneunga Lake, or takes them to the Coach USA bus station so they can go even farther. Info at movesullivan.com or 845-434-4102. Move Sullivan, connecting our communities. Paid for by Sullivan County Government. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we've got one of the great culinary stars of the Midwest, Minneapolis's Gavin Kaysen, who's also one of the very rare chefs I know 
who really loves and understands home cooking. We've got him talking about what he loves to make, how to do it, coming up on The Splendid Table. The Splendid Table, Sunday morning at 11 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org 